0: Welcome to Under the Hood, a podcast by Le Studio, where we chat about the ins and outs of entrepreneurship with real-life innovators. Hello everybody, I am Karine Sarkissian. In this episode, we're chatting with a friend and wonderful investor, Thomas Knowles. Thomas joined Gratitude Railroad in January 2015 as managing partner. Prior to Gratitude Railroad, Thomas led corporate development and strategy for a leading outdoor e-commerce company, Backcountry, and a publicly traded software as a service company, LivePerson. He also spent five years in investing roles with SVB Capital, the venture capital arm of Silicon Valley Bank. Thomas graduated from Santa Clara University with a degree in economics. Raised in Seattle and a 10-year stint in San Francisco Bay Area, Thomas now lives in Park City, Utah with his wife, Jessie, and their kids, Dana, Kira, and Weston. Welcome, Thomas. I am so excited to have you here, to have you join us today.
1: Thank you. Excited to be here as well.
0: So as you know, we've had a good series of episodes published so far, and we usually start with one more kind of interesting, very personal question. I'd love for you to tell me about something that you're proud of that I would say has probably nothing to do with work.
1: Yeah, I always struggle with the word proud, because I feel like it means I did a lot to make it happen. But this one very much is in that camp. But I'm very proud of the three kids that we have, my daughter, Dana, Kira and Weston, who are nine, seven and five years old. It's very fun to see them grow up and try and figure out how you can be helpful to their process of figuring out who they are. And also knowing that you Probably don't have much to do with that either, but it is something that's very important to me. And anytime I can get outside of work and spending, spending with them and the ages they're at is pretty fun. They want to hang out with you. They think you're interesting and fun, but they're a little bit more self sufficient. So it's something I'm very proud of.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, we chatted about that and I know how important your family is to you. And I'd love to, you know, piggyback on this and ask you a little bit more about, you know, you've moved a bunch and had to sort of changed geographies change jobs i know it's often not very easy to find that balance and manage that balance between professional life and development and sort of like that personal side especially given that sounds like you have this amazing and lovely family how would you say that you sort of manage that balance
1: yeah i mean i think for me it's been a balance you know i've never been hyper focused on one category or the other i think i do try and think about that balance across the work and family and my own personal interests outside Of work, and I'm kind of willing along the way to flex into one of those areas as I think is needed. So yeah, I think from a career standpoint, it wasn't always for me about I'm trying to get to a certain place from a success or a monetary perspective. It was very, has been very much purpose driven and people driven. And then personally, I've always felt like I didn't want to be at a place when I was whatever, 60, 65 years old and kind of then trying to do all the things that I saw people trying to do where they had prioritized their career in terms of spending time with family or around their areas of interest. And so I do try and do that along the way. It's sometimes more challenging than others, but I think for me, I would much rather have that challenge along the way and know that kind of I'm doing the things that I think are important and I enjoy versus waiting to try and do that all once I've gotten to a certain place in my career. So yeah, I think it's been a trade-off of what the priority is at any given time, but also willing to take, you know, a little bit of a risk of okay, I'm going to, you know, move here because it's important for my family and personal perspective, and maybe a little bit more risk on a career standpoint, or, or vice versa.
0: Totally. I guess to that point, this is again, a little personal, but you know, why the move to Park City? How did you choose Park City? The thing that by the way, I love about these podcasts is we do a little bit of like digging and chat with <laughs> you. And I had no idea you worked at Backcountry, which is super cool. Yeah. Cause I love that platform. Is that one of the reasons you moved to Park City? Or was it like, you know, what was sort of the impetus for choosing Park City specifically?
1: yeah so we moved to Park City about ten years ago. We were in San Francisco prior to that uh, by we, my wife and I and uh we were about to start having kids, and I remember it very clearly. My wife and I were sitting on Chrissy Beach in San Francisco talking about you know do we want to kind of put roots down in San Francisco and start a family here and and I think for us. We felt like if we had children in the Bay Area, we probably would have stayed for the long term. And we both were passionate about spending time outdoors, a little bit honestly less passionate about kind of the city living and the city lifestyle and all the amazing things that cities offer. And so we just both had kind of an itch that we felt like we needed to scratch um before we made that commitment to being in one place. And Honestly, Park City, I joke, it was a spreadsheet decision and, you know, Park City is an amazing place, at least from my perspective, in terms of back to that balance of, you know, having great access to the things that we love to do in the outdoors, great place to raise a family, and also still being very accessible and, you know, lots of activities still from a business standpoint. We made the lead to basically go through a process of trying to figure out if it was something we wanted to do. So, started spending a lot of time out in, in Park City and Salt Lake, meeting the community there. Again, we didn't have any connections. so. One, needed to get connected if we were going to move, and then two, it was helpful from kind of validating whether or not it was a place that we could see ourselves. And yeah, backcountry, honestly, it was kind of a funny process where my prior job, I was working in corporate development, so doing M&A and acquisitions and strategy for a company I was headquartered in New York. Uh, I was in San Francisco. I was really thinking, you know, do I go back to investing, which I had done prior, uh, or do I stay in more of an operating role? And I was looking at both in the Utah area. And I'm an avid skier and backcountry enthusiast. And so I'd known the brand and they are based and headquartered in Park City, probably one of you know one of very few companies that are. So kind of reached out, being like, Well, I wonder what they're all about from a corporate standpoint versus from a customer standpoint. And yeah, long story short, it was a great opportunity to join, do M&A and investing for them. At the time, you know, it's a publicly traded company owned by Liberty Media and, and really growing pretty rapidly. And so was able to work with kind of that mid stage company. And then ultimately by the time I left, they sold to a private equity business. So yeah, it was super fun to go from working on, you know, software and technology to talking about skis and fly fishing on a day to day basis. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: I love that. I mean, that's probably what's, you know, given you such a unique perspective as well. And like a sense, you know, you can kind of be able to come in and out of worlds and see and bring sort of your passions to what you do. I was genuinely so excited to, to chat with you today because of everything that I know about Gratitude Railroad. And I think it'd be great for you to share a little bit more. I know you joined in January 2015 as a managing partner. But maybe you can tell some of our listeners uh, more about Gratitude Railroad, how it was started, the principles that it's based on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else you'd like to share?
1: And maybe I'll just weave in a little bit of kind of w- why Gratitude Railroad, uh, given what I shared about my background. But yeah, I think going from early stage in investing and then working in the tech sector, moving to Park City, working in the backcountry, thinking about you know my own goals and life and purpose and what I wanted to spend time on ultimately got me into a headspace where I was pretty convinced I wanted to go back to investing, but I really wanted to do it with much more intention and and more of a long-term perspective. I think that's oftentimes what's missing in, in investing broadly. And so... Uh, was exploring family offices you know I had been familiar with the idea of social impact investing through my time in, in undergraduate uh, where you know microfinance started to become a really mainstream financial tool and I always thought that was very compelling and um so it was kind of in the back of my mind and so as I was thinking about this transition of wanting to stay in in Park City, you know, moving into an investment role, having some more intention and purpose around that. was fortunate to meet our co-founders at Gratitude Railroad in the very early days and was really inspired by what they were building, which, you know, at the time was really a community of similar people as them in terms of they had come from a successful quote-unquote traditional finance and entrepreneurial background and were committing their time and energy and capital to this concept of impact investing, which you know, I, I hesitate to say in 2013, it was early because there's obviously a lot of people that had been working on it well before that. But I think in terms of the mainstream conversation, it was a bit earlier. So their goal was really to use their social capital to try and convince other quote unquote traditional capitalists to look at the field of impact investing, start to think differently about how we use business and finance to address social environmental issues. And they had built a really incredible community that was meeting and debating and discussing and doing investments and learning. So I got engaged in that community uh, in 2013 and 2014. And then in 2015, as you mentioned, we decided to formalize the, the partnership and, and launch the business as really a go-forward concept of how do we really demonstrate this idea of impact investing. And for us, what that means is that we want to build community around it. We want to help engage and educate, inspire more investors to look at this way of investing. Uh, And then we want to demonstrate how to actually do it. So we've built an investment business as well. And those two, Things, the community and the investments are deeply integrated. We think it's really important for lots of reasons we can go into, but we've been investing since 2016 in early stage venture and then also making uh, early stage investments in new impact funds. And it's been for me extremely fulfilling. I was not necessarily looking to take kind of startup risk and help build an organization from the early days, but I always say this is yeah, the one we're building is the one if we can make it work, I would do it for the rest of my career. So it's been a good good experience for sure.
0: That's awesome. I love how your sort of your curiosity led you to sort of seep deeper and deeper. So we're going to talk about this in a little bit, given that you were at SVB before, and you were sort of more, I guess, in a traditional kind of space in venture capital and everything, like, what would you say are some of the core differences between traditional VC and impact oriented VC? And I know impact investing has become also somewhat of a buzzword as well. And sort of how do you strike that balance between those two areas and also like making sure that it's not just being used as a buzzword or like, you know, as a as an empty filler somehow?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's two things on that. Um, one, and, and this is definitely for me and for Gratitude Railroad, and, and I'm sure other impact investors might have a different perspective on how they'd answer that question. And that should be totally fair because I think it is wide ranging. But for me, you know, one is that long-term orientation. I think I always struggled in my experience with traditional venture, as supposed to be the longest-term asset class in kind of the investing world, um, really focused on on long-term innovations. And I think I felt my experience was that was not really core to the approach. It, it was a bit more focused on kind of where the near-term opportunity was, and relatively transactionally focused in terms of you know, where could the exit happen in in a relatively near term period? So I think one was wanting to shift that mindset of, okay, what are the questions we ask? What are the things that we'd invest in if we had a 20, 30 year horizon versus a five to seven year horizon. And then two, I think it's the intentionality of like where we invest. So I have nothing, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities in lots of sectors, but for me, I wanted to have an intention of investing with entrepreneurs that were trying to solve our most pressing societal problems. Again, I think entrepreneurship and technology and venture is like a really precious resource in a lot of ways. And so if we can, you know, use that uh, to focus on the things that are, you know, the big issues we're facing, that, that's where I was inspired to do it. And I think, you know, again, back to the founders and the entrepreneurs, I've always been more aligned with the people that were coming to starting a company because they had some lived experience or some purpose that was driving them. I think it always resonated more with me. And I also believe, uh, you know, starting a company and, and building one is extremely difficult. And so having that mission and purpose and that drive, I think is really critical just in terms of the, the success of, of an entrepreneur. So so those were kind of the two things, the long-term orientation and the intentionality around you know, what solutions we were trying to drive towards.
0: Oh, totally. I always say, like as investors, you kind of have such a unique opportunity to some extent to lead, you know, trends or to support the right companies because, you know, then you know that the sustainability in itself or the you know, the life cycle of the company becomes much, much longer because, you know, you're deciding that it's worthy of an investment to keep them going. So to those points about, you know, the criteria that you sort of listed on the longevity and all those different aspects, could you share maybe with us some of your investments at Graduate Railroads? Like, And then tell us a little bit more about like your sourcing, like how do you find these companies and sort of what specific assessments are you looking at in terms of impact as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll focus on our early stage investing. Um, and, and then we can talk more about our fund investing as well. But In terms of our early stage investing, so we invest at the seed series A level, really what we're looking for is companies that are in market, commercialized, they have early traction with customers, they're maybe kind of 500k to a million in in revenue run rate. Um, So there's an ability for us as relative generalists within the impact space, because we do invest across social and environmental issue areas. For us to kind of validate the innovation through the customer adoption versus being the experts ourselves on on the, you know investing very early and picking technologies, so that customer tra- traction is very important. But we do invest across social and environmental issue areas, and ultimately, you know, the impact for us and how we think about it is is really twofold. One is what is the product and service that the company is delivering to the market. And this has been a, an evolution in, in our learning is really thinking about, is it getting at a root cause systemic issue versus more of a band-aid or kind of iterative approach? And sometimes iterative approaches are what's needed. So I won't argue that everything we do is getting right at a, a root cause, but it's a, a depth of thinking around, you know, what what is the impact here in terms of the product and service? And then two is how the company operates. So big believers in the B-Corp methodology, the notion of a stakeholder mindset, the importance of ethos around diversity, equity, inclusion. So we think a lot about kind of what's the ethos and mission of the company from the founders to the team to the other investors. So those are the ways we can incorporate impact, but we ultimately are... Looking to find companies that have the ability to drive outside financial returns and deliver a competitive portfolio in ventures. So looking at, you know, market size and competitors and business model and all that good stuff as well. Some of our recent investments that I'll mention. So we've recently invested in two companies this year. One is more in the environmental space called uh, Blue Ocean Gear, which is a smart buoy technology for the commercial fishing space. I think it's a really interesting example of a company that's their core product has such a clear ROI standalone from any of the impact that they're having by helping fishermen and fisher people track their fishing gear and the kind of costs associated with lost fishing gear and then the impact is really by reducing the lost fishing gear reducing things like bycatch and ocean plastics uh, and then there's also kind of even a bigger impact and business opportunity around the data that they're collecting and how to bat- better manage fisheries for the benefit of not only economics, but a planet as well. So that's one. And then uh, the other one is in the, in the health space, 28 health. It's a women's health company, uh, focused on underserved women, primarily through Medicaid, applying kind of a, a telemedicine pathway, but also partnering with health insurance companies to create more access and providing service that is culturally relevant from women, high quality. So really in that category of increasing access to a population that has unfortunately been underserved in in a key health category. So yeah, those are two. And both, you know, founding teams are incredibly mission driven, have the credentials to go after the opportunity. And uh, yeah, we're excited to be partners with both of those companies.
0: That's so cool. And I love that the two examples you gave us are quite different, actually. And how much like tracking is done post investment in terms of the impact? Like, I know with impact measurement, you know, we always say that there's a lot of quantitative tracking that you can do, and that's usually pretty direct. And then there's the qualitative side, right? So like knowing the satisfaction, for example, with 28 Health, like how are the women actually feeling about the services that they're receiving and, you know, and understanding that? How would you say that, you know, you sort of mitigate for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really important question. I think there's the answer I'll give now, and I expect we'll have a different answer in six months because I had a different answer six months ago. I think it is a, you know, a definitely an evolving category. And I think that's important for us to continue to think about is, you know, how do we maybe not be at the bleeding edge, but the kind of the leading edge of this conversation. So we take an approach of uh, really at a higher level and then at a much more micro level. So at a higher level, we think about impact in terms of our investment process and how are we incorporating impact at every step of our investment process? And is it at the depth that we want it? Is it integrated enough that we want it? Is it? Are we taking the best practices from the industry of Again, integrating it from sourcing, through diligence, through decision-making, to post-investment support, to exit. There's a great organization called BlueMark that's focused on what they're describing as impact verification. So kind of that process of understanding as an asset manager, are you incorporating impact in the best possible way throughout your investment process? So that's kind of at a macro level that I think is really important to think about. And then more at the micro level, we focus on each individual company and and ideally trying to collaborate with that company. I think that's so important if you're going to do, you know, impact tracking or measurements to have the alignment with the founders that that's important to them and that those are the things that they want to be tracking. And for us, we don't think they should be a whole separate set of data or inputs. Our fundamental belief is that, you know, impact is a competitive advantage or competitive edge. So. Kind of the quote unquote KPIs you'd be tracking for business and impact shouldn't be different. I mean, you might put more emphasis on, on something, but you know, the example you gave, right, of satisfaction of, of the customers of 28 health. I mean, yes, has clear impact, but that's core to their business model as well. So that's a great example of a, of an impact metric that we'd want to be tracking. That should be a core metric as well. This, uh, and I kind of went macro and micro. I think the challenge, especially for us, is that uh, middle layer, which is to do it at a portfolio level? Given we invest across issue areas, and then we also invest in funds and companies. I think that's still an outstanding challenge for the market. Is you know, how do you really say at a portfolio level what you've been doing from an impact perspective that doesn't get so diluted that you end up kind of aggregating it up to something that you know is important but not, might not be as nuanced as it should be? Uh, so I think that's still a work in progress for us for sure.
0: Totally. No, I love that because, you know, at Tomorrow Capital, we have a very similar kind of perspective. And at the studio, we help a lot of companies like sort of understand that those two pieces go hand in hand. And it's really, really important. And, you know, a crucial kind of perspective for the, you know, the livelihood and longevity of a company for it to be surviving. It needs to be doing good on both sides, for sure. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, because I think you have a very unique experience and a very unique perspective with everything that's sort of happening on all these sort of bank failures and SVB in particular. Um, um, I said this in the intro, but you were a former insider for about five years at SVB Capital. And I'd be so interested in hearing your take on the bank's failures and how do you think maybe this could have been avoided and what measures could have been taken sort of differently to mediate for this
1: yeah, you know, it, it was a while ago, uh, but I couldn't speak more highly of the, my experience at, at SVB. And I, I've always said this. I think the culture at SVB was one of the most positive cultures I ever experienced. Still have a lot of people that I'm, I'm close to at the organization. And so, you know, overall just you know, saddened by what, what transpired there. So I was in their asset management group, SVB Capital focused on their fund of funds investing and their early stage direct investing. So not part of the, Commercial bank, but definitely familiar with with the bank enough um, from my experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple areas where one part of what made SVB so special was also I think what drove the challenge ultimately. You know, what drove what was so special about SVB is they had created this incredibly unique relationship in the venture and startup ecosystem. Said differently, they had customer concentration, um, which I think for the decades that they had it was their secret sauce, their differentiator. They did it better than anyone else. Many people tried and, and SVB, you know, a great example is they were always there through kind of the challenging times and and the good times and, and I saw that firsthand because I was I was there during the financial crisis and saw how they operated relative to other banks. So that was kind of the positive side of it. I think the the negative side is that when things went sideways, that customer concentration you know worked against them, right? I mean, no other bank has the same level of risk of that virality around. Oh, things are going poorly. Uh, that gets spread across the customer base and the speed and pace that that it did at S V B. So I think that is like a fundamental thing that that really took the, a bad situation and made it definitive. I think the the bank did, although I think did a good job of trying to manage within the ups and downs of the venture ecosystem and the startup ecosystem, there's no denying that it still had fluctuations along with the venture ecosystem. And we all know there's massive fluctuations in terms of the environments that you operate in in the startup ecosystem. So 2021, 2022 were unprecedented times in, in venture in terms of the growth and the pace of investing and the pace of capital raising. And so, you know, SUB benefited from that, but I think it also got caught up in, in that as, as, uh, as many of the venture funds and other banks did. So yeah, I think there's also, and this is where I don't have enough of, uh, a knowledge there, but my worry would be, yeah, in those times where things were going really well, um, and you're trying to manage, you know, shareholders and stakeholders, and kind of be that bank that it's been for for decades. You know, ultimately, did they take too much risk? Probably. Did it mean that they should have ended up closing down? I think I would have hoped it would have been avoidable, uh, but I think it came back to that customer. A customer challenge, um, for the bank. So very, very unfortunate. I think it was a special place. And I know a lot of the folks have landed other organizations and we'll hopefully you know, figure out how to let those other organizations operate in the startup ecosystem. Because I do think it, it is challenging for commercial banks to operate in the start, startup ecosystem. And it's important that that they're there. So yeah, those would be
0: some of my thoughts. Actually, I never really thought about sort of the exclusivity of their customer base in that sense as like the strength of it, but at the same time, like really like one of the biggest challenges and and sort of beginning of this sort of this failure. But yeah, I mean, I've always had really good experience with them, loved their events and stuff. So it was was definitely a a big shock for the community out here. And Thomas, like, I don't know if you can speak to this, but you know, we, we are seeing obviously a continuous kind of other failures such as like First Republic Blank and I guess how do you? you think this domino effect will further project into the industry and you know what sort of what do you think could happen when these larger institutional players continue to collapse
1: yeah i mean i'll put like more of the macro impacts aside because that's not really an area where it probably is that helpful i think in terms of the impact on the venture and startup ecosystem i do think debt and venture debt specifically is an important tool for the ecosystem to take more leverage when you've got a equity raise uh, to reduce dilution on teams and founders. so I have no I'm positive on on venture debt. I think it was probably overused over the course of the last five years given the cost of capital to, to drive you know more growth than was probably necessary. So in general I, you know I think a lot of the correction broadly that's happening I think is a good thing the ecosystem. And I'd put you know the correction around venture debt in that category as well. Uh, but I do think it's important. I do worry that not having banks as part of that ecosystem is probably, probably going to be a challenge. I mean, I think other private investors will step into the venture debt market. I mean, there's always been private lenders focused on venture debt, and there's great players. And I think there'll be more that see this opportunity of OK, banks have pulled out. Um, this is an opportunity for private lenders to step in. So I think you'll see a lot of that. So I'm not category of, oh, there's going to be a venture debt gap in the market. But I do think having commercial banks, regulated commercial banks, uh, regional specialized commercial banks that are providing more of a platform of services versus just a standalone loan i think is important because lending to a startup is you're lending to a startup right it's just like there's there's so much inherent risk to it and so i think it's very hard to take kind of a traditional lending perspective and apply it to the startup ecosystem so i would like to see you know, some commercial banks figure out how to play. I think there will be more private lenders that also focus on the startup ecosystem. So I think it will be a gap that will be filled. I think it hopefully it's filled in a way that, you know, we've got some of the great things that SVU is doing in, in other players.
0: So I want to be cognizant of time. Uh, I do want to ask one last question that we like to ask. That's again a little bit sort of random, but at the studio, we really believe that kindness is a way of being and it should be, you know, baked into everything we do. And so we often like to end with this question. What's an act of kindness that you have given or that you recently received?
1: Wow. <laughs> That's a good question. Some of the things that we talk about is, is kindness with clarity. And I think it speaks to like feedback and having the uh, wanting to support uh, beyond just being kind. And so I think it is a, it's a really good one to bring up. I will say, so act of kindness I received. So I, we just brought on a, uh, another managing partner and a co-CEO at graduate railroad, which I couldn't be more excited about. Uh, and Rebecca Saul Butler and um uh, small thing. I don't know why it's coming to mind, but on Friday of last week, she, she picked up the phone and, and gave me a call and just gave me some positive feedback on a few of the things that had happened that week. And, um, I think that's the kind of an example of the small things when people are heads down and and working to just give them uh, some support of saying, yeah, you did a great job there and um, keep going, keep at it. Uh, So, yeah, that's what came to mind.
0: That's awesome. And I know when we chatted, you shared how excited you were about her joining. Um, So very excited to see sort of how gratitude will continue to grow it and shape, you know, the industry because you guys are really creating incredible ripples and in the best way. So I can't thank you enough. And it's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Thomas.
1: Likewise. Thank you for this opportunity. It was
0: fun. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Thomas Knowles. You can learn more about Thomas on his LinkedIn and on Graduate Railroad's website. I encourage you to check this out and learn more about his work at length. To learn more about Le Studio, you know where to find us on our socials on LinkedIn and Instagram at lestudio.io and on our website at lestudio.io. Stay tuned for our next episode with Riley Rogers from Valia VC. We've got many more exciting episodes coming out and we're so excited for you to have a listen. Let us know your feedback and your comments and thank you and see you next time.